Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. We are in the second month of the WGA strike. Um, it's okay. Uh, you know, I'm, I've been out there a bunch. It's good to see that folks are still out there. You know, um, there have been times when it's been a little thin on the line, but that's mostly during the shift changeover. And I think the Guild has been really good about communicating that and getting getting people out there um but we're still out there and we're still going strong and i have not talked to anyone whose determination has wavered one bit it's kind of incredible um this is about the time when folks are going to start feeling the pinch you know we we want to be making stuff we want to be selling stuff um and and the amptp has made that impossible by refusing to engage and despite that the feeling out on the picket line, the feeling in the rallies and meetings, um, the communication from our leadership has all been incredibly optimistic and and the solidarity that's coming across is kind of amazing. Um, it, it, it really makes you proud to be a part of something. And, and the good news, and I've talked about this before, you don't have to be in the union. The writer's guild to be a part of this you know the interunion support on this has been amazing um the the sag folks who we've walked with the uh teamsters iatsi animators like it's just it's incredible and, and pre-wga writers folks who want to be doing what we are doing the reason that we are fighting for a future in this industry uh have been out on the line and been supporting and it's it's really incredible so i want to thank all those folks who i've seen out there um please keep showing up we really appreciate it uh everybody appreciates it before we get into today's episode with uh screenwriter david Hayter, whom you know from x men x2 all kinds of movies I have a brief chat with my WGA strike captain, uh, Gabe Garza. I've talked about Gabe and his really phenomenal perspective and outlook on both the industry and the strike uh, over on my newsletter at benblacker.substack.com. I really recommend you go check that out. You know, Gabe, let me take excerpts from some of the emails that he sent us um, as, as his captain group. Um, as well as things that he he put together just for me to post. Um, and they're all really thoughtful and helpful. He's a good guy. He's, he's risen to be a great leader in this strike. Um, and he has great things to say about, you know, the people he works with, both, you know, other, other captains, but also the people on the line. Uh, he has great stories about going to, to strike on location in the middle of the night, uh, which are worth hearing. So uh, Gabe was a, a executive producer on The Flash. Uh, he wrote on The Winchesters. Um, he's He's been around. Uh, he knows his stuff. He's a good writer, uh, a good fellow, and I thank him for being on this. Please enjoy this conversation with Gabe, and then we'll get into the uh, chat with David Hayter. Union song, union battle, all at it all.
this is it. We're doing it. Um, I'm chatting with Gabe Garza, who is my captain. But uh, you, it's been amazing seeing you every time I'm over at Warner Brothers. You are there. Um, tell us, I think the place to start is like, what does a strike captain do? What do you do as a captain? All right. Well, you know, it kind of reminds me of film school for those people that have been to film school in that you have a title, you have something you agree to do and you say, sure, I'll join in that project. And then you show up and you kind of just do whatever needs to be done. Very, very, very similar to that. Uh, we wear literal hats, but everyone kind of wears every hat and titles kind of go out the window. And what's been really cool is to kind of see, you know, there's people that have been in the guild for a year and they're a story editor, they're a staff writer, but they're really good at this. And they kind of rise to the rank of general. And you see them giving orders to Emmy winners and, and showrunners and the showrunners going, yes, ma'am. Like they, they want to take the orders from that person. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of see people sort of rise up and discover things that maybe they didn't even know were inside them in terms of leadership and organizing. And it, it reminds me a little bit of, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I kind of imagine this is how the Rebel Alliance must have started, just all grassroots like this. So in addition to like when I roll in at, you know, some easy hour, like 930, you've been doing some 430 a.m., if not earlier uh, picketing. Tell me about that and like tell folks why we're doing that. But also I'd love to hear your experiences in doing that. Oh, okay. Well, so the why has to do with when trucks come. So picketing has many functions. It has many things that it does that are great. It's a great way for all of us to sort of be united and to get press and somewhere to put that nervous energy now that we're all on strike. But one of the other things is, and some people may not know this, but uh, there's the Teamsters, which are a union. They drive many of the production trucks that you see in town. And they have the ability to not cross a picket line if they so choose. It's an individual choice and it's up to the drivers. But basically, according to law, a picket line is two people. So if you have at least two people at a gate, then a truck will, if they so choose, turn away. And the most amazing thing is most of them are turning away. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing to see. Now, anyone who works in production knows that trucks don't usually come nine to five. Nine to five is when you're usually shooting. Trucks come a lot earlier than that. So in order to sort of be there when the trucks are there, we've started early picketing at some studios. I coordinate the 4.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. shift at Warner Brothers. And it was really amazing. You know, we were turning away tons of trucks and what it also does is it makes the nine to five picket line more meaningful because we can turn them away in the morning and the nine to five is like a shield and it keeps them away. I like to tell people that, you know, if you pick it during the day, you're a shield. If you pick it in the morning, you're a sword. So if you ever want to be a sword, join in. Tell me about those. Tell me about the sword vibes. Uh, like I've I've seen some pictures from you. Some a couple of my friends have been at Warner Brothers with you in the mornings and like it is quiet there yeah so you know it's it's so interesting your schedule kind of adjusts and so i'm used to waking up at 2 30 in the morning now and that's just like morning time 
And you get there. And what I like to do is make sure that people feel like they're being effective. If you're giving us those hours, if you're getting up that early, you're there for a reason and you're there to make a difference. So literally most days we'll have two people at each gate. And if one of those persons isn't there, it doesn't work. Truck doesn't turn away. So people really do like every vote counts, so to speak, when you're on the morning patrol. And people have really enjoyed that. And they feel like, you know, it's great to walk nine to five, but there's some people that want to make a little extra difference and feel that tangible difference. And there's nothing like the majesty of seeing a truck turn around and honk its horn at four in the morning. Uh, it was actually so successful that we were able to kind of put a pause on it right now because all the trucks stopped coming. And I actually went outside of those hours even earlier, kind of looking around the clock and just to make sure that the trucks weren't sort of adjusting to our schedules. And and they weren't. Um, the Warner Brothers and Universal are like two of the biggest prop houses in town. So even though most studios have kind of parked their trucks on the lot, there's still trucks that go in and out of there. But we're going to keep an eye on it and wait till we see more activity. Because again, I don't like to have people out there unless it's for a reason. So in the meantime, I've got involved with something called rapid response. And this is something that any WGA writer can sign up for, rapid response at WGA.org. And it's a location picket that the guild sort of like organizes. So this is kind of like the bat signal. You get a message and they're like, can anybody be at this spot tomorrow morning at 4 a.m.? Or we need to go all night from 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. Can you be in Santa Clarita like tonight? And then you respond and, and you uh, sometimes I've captained those, but most of the time just joined in. And those have been also really, really, um, you know, interesting. Every single one is different. You have no idea how they're going to go. Um, but it's, again, just like very inspiring to see people that are, you know, I was in the Santa Clarita Mountains uh, a week or so ago. And you had first time, you know, guild members with like, you know, and so it's like all these people willing to give their time and fight the good fight, you know, dodging rattlesnakes with us at two in the morning, uh, you know, in the middle of pitch black mountains uh, to, uh, you know, help shut down the old man, which uh, we were successful in. That's really amazing. And and it is, like you say, like such a. An immediate help. Right. Like you, you're getting to see the difference that you're making on the line. Um, and I'll, I'll say again, the it's a rapid response at WGA.org. Uh, if that's something that anyone is interested, in. folks can go and pitch in on this. Uh, yes, I will say you literally do sometimes see the, the immediate response, like uh, to the point where, uh, you know, upset producers and very expensive cars peeling out in the dirt a foot away from you. Uh, spitting up rocks and uh, it's I didn't know how happy that would make me until I saw it <laughs> that's tremendous this is the stuff you know I, I mentioned before we started recording that like I was going to ask how you are keeping your optimism up and how you how the folks on the line are keeping hope up and and like to me this is it it's like hearing these stories and going out to you know I've been at Warner Brothers but going out to a couple of the other studios too and seeing the still the masses of folks who are out there yeah i mean it's one of those things where you see the people around you it's hard not to be inspired 
it's hard not to meet them at that energy. So it doesn't matter. There's people that work many more hours than I do. The guild staff who aren't writers, the people in the black shirts, not the blue shirts, they work both shifts every day, plus hours before, plus hours after, and on the weekend. And I'm occasionally in some Zoom meetings with them. And you know somebody is tired when you can see it through Zoom, through all the compression. There's so many people doing that that, again, it you can't help but be inspired and you almost want to just keep doing it for them and just do right by them. Yeah, it really there there's a feeling of like not just let's not let each other down, but let's lift each other up here. Absolutely, man. Gabe, thank you for all of your thoughts all the time. I, I love getting your emails about what's going on. Uh, you have such a great perspective on all this, a, a great attitude too. So thank you for that. Thanks for, for captaining and all the work you've done. Come check in again in a few weeks, will you? Will do, man. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Union song, union battle, all at it all. What is all what we got now? Union song, union battle, all at it up. What is all what we got now? I can't even stop to Thanks again to Gabe Garza for joining me for that conversation. Um, really great stuff. Up next, I've got David Hayter, who wrote the X-Men movie, which uh, came out in 2000 and like told us what comic book movies could be. It's a really good movie. X-Men and X2, which he also wrote, um, are really great. He's also the writer of Watchmen. Um, and he was a writer on Warrior Nun, the television show uh, on Netflix uh, in 2020 uh, that went for, I think, a couple seasons. Um, he's also an actor, which <laughs> I didn't know because I'm, I don't know anything about Metal Gear. Uh, he plays Solid Snake or Gold Snake. I don't know, something like that. Solid Snake uh, in Metal Gear. And he said most people want to talk to him about that. So he was very happy to have an opportunity to talk about screenwriting. He has, as he talks about in this interview, written, you know, 50, 60 projects over the past 20 years. Some of them have been turned into things. Some of them have not. That is the way of this business. Um, David's got a great perspective on the industry. And he emailed me after we spoke and said, you know, we we talk about money in this and we talk about like how much he's been paid and how much, you know, he hasn't been paid <laughs> over the years. And he said he really wants screenwriters to hear about what to do in times of success and and for how to manage longevity in the business, which I think is a legitimate topic of conversation. And we just sort of touch on it in this chat um and it's something i think we'll, we'll come back to over the years but like you know longevity in this business is not a sure thing you know we do get paid an awful lot or if we're lucky we get paid an awful lot for a screenplay or or a pilot or whatever but that may be the only thing that we do for two or five or or ten years um and so we talk a little bit about that um David genuinely wants writers, and you'll hear him talk about this in here, he wants writers to have hope that success is achievable in this business and that all of the work that 
you've been doing, that you're doing now, um, is worthwhile. And that was, as I said to him at the end of this interview, like that was something I needed to hear. Um, the day we recorded it specifically, you know, uh, the business has been tough for so long, really since I got into it, which was about 15 years ago. It's been constantly changing and, and in the past few years, even more rapidly changing. And in many good ways, but in many ways that make it harder and harder to make a living in the business. And that's part of why we're on strike right now. Anyway, we, we touch on all that stuff. We get into a lot of really great craft stuff. Uh, Hater is a real craft head. He has great insights um, on structure and character, especially. I, I learned some great stuff from him in this conversation about writing fight scenes. Um, so that's worth a listen. Um, overall, a really great conversation. After you give this a listen, please um, do me a favor. Go over and check out the newsletter, benblacker.substack.com. And um, if you're not subscribed, please become a subscriber. And if you are a subscriber, please consider upgrading your subscription to a paid subscription where you will get uh, access to our monthly Q&As with paid writers. Uh, we're definitely going to have David Hayter uh, sometime down the line. Um, but already, you know, you can listen to the recordings of the ones we've done so far with everyone from Sarah Gamble uh, to Akela Cooper to uh, Javi Grio Markswatch and Jose Molina. Uh, so many great writers who had just incredible things to say about the craft and business of writing. Subjects that are, to me, endlessly fascinating and hopefully to you. Thanks for listening. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! David Hater's here. David, thank you for chatting. Ben Blacker, thank you for having me. We met on the picket line. Um, So I really just want to start by asking about your mental health. How are you holding up? How has it been out there? What has your picketing schedule been like? What's your life look like right now? Um, well, mental health is good. You know, obviously this is really hard on on everybody. Um, but uh, kind of gave all of the free work that the studios were waiting on from me, and uh, I was able to just say, "No, we're not doing any of that." So, so that was nice. And then. You know, even though it is such a hard time, such a disruptive thing, being out on the picket lines is is really kind of a cool experience, you know, because you're all fighting for what you believe in. Uh, and I get to meet all sorts of people like yourself um, that I, I wouldn't normally run into. I mean, especially for, you know, feature screenwriters, we don't we don't tend to see anybody. Um, and so it's really cool to. uh I met a writer the other day. I was talking to this guy named Dante, and I said, "Oh, what do you do?" And he said, "Oh, I wrote. Um, oh, now I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, uh, Edge of Tomorrow, and um, you know, a few other things that with some friends of mine. And it's super cool just to meet people who who have the same strange life as you. you know? So, uh, so all in all, it's been it's been it's been pretty good. I've been to uh, you know many many of the studios and." met all sorts of dedicated awesome writers young and old that's great it, re it really is such an you know as much as nobody wanted this it really is such a time to connect with people like you say we we may not have otherwise met um so you've been in the the 
feature trenches for a long time. And we'll talk about, you know, some of the TV stuff, but you know, you've, you've been working at this for over 20 years. It seems like, you know, about this free work stuff. Can you speak to like, what does that look like when you are in development on a project and, and like, how does free work get broached? How does this happen and continue to happen? You know, it's, it's really insidious. Uh, I, uh, and as you said, I've been doing it for a long time. I've been paid by every studio pretty much in existence uh, and TV network. And, uh, you know, that it should be able to happen to me is really ridiculous. Um, but I'll give you an example. I was, I was working, I was brought in to adapt a comic book for, um, uh, by, uh, that had, was owned, the rights were owned by a big TV star who had an overall deal um, with uh, Warner Brothers. And uh, I really I loved the guy that owned the thing. And there was a, a huge legendary director attached who I was a great admirer of. And Warners wanted to develop it as a TV pitch. And the and my lawyers started negotiating the deal, like negotiating what I would be paid for the series, should it go, so on and so forth. But it was under what they now call an if come deal, which means that you don't get paid unless the TV show gets sold, which is sort of similar to what producers go through. You know, film producers don't get paid until the, until the movie gets made. But I have to do all the work, the writing work in advance. Um, and it turned out I worked on that show for two years without making a single dollar. Um, and, uh, and in the end, Warners didn't really wasn't really behind the show. They just wanted to sort of, you know, do this for on on behalf of the the big TV star, but with no real intention of making the show. So, you know, it turned out we were all sort of just spinning our wheels because we were fans of this this big TV star. And it wasn't his fault. He didn't he didn't make the deal. Um, but by the time it fell apart, I realized I'd been working for two years for nothing. Um, I called the guild and said, look, is this even legal? Like, how is this possible? And they said, well, they can't, they can't give you notes on an if come deal. Well, they gave me notes for two years. Um, so that's how it happens, you know, and uh, you're just, you know, so, so you want to say, I'm, I'm never going to take another if come deal, which I've, I've said a number of times, but then some big IP comes along and the, studios behind they're like oh we love this we're going to get it made it'll be made in the next six months and so you take a gamble and then again you know you get screwed over and the thing falls apart and you've done all this work for nothing so um so my only advice i mean you really have to stand firm and say uh like what i do now is i say if you want a, a television development um you know you want me to put together a pitch that's you know i'll ask for between 25 and $40,000 or something. And of course that's, I mean, they don't want to pay anything. So that's at the very high end. Um, but, uh, but typically it's, it's six months to a year's worth of work. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's really a sticky and, and when you're a younger writer and you don't have leverage or you don't have money in the bank and, you know, some big studios saying, oh, we're really excited about this, really excited about you. They might say, we'll make an announcement, you know, which, you know, has its own value for you. They fool you into into taking this work for nothing. And, you know, 
they're getting free work and you're starving to death. So, um, so it's really, it's important for the guild to get behind it and just say, this is not, that's, that's not uh, paid work. That's not legitimate labor. If comes didn't even occur to me in the conversation about free work, because it always does feel like there's something behind it. But how many times have we had if comes where like nothing comes of it because of changes with the studio or they lose interest or whatever it is? Yeah, or your executive gets fired or they close the event miniseries department or, you know, there's like a million things and yet you've already done the work. So, you know, you can't be drawn in by the fact that a big name studio is saying we're excited about doing this. If they're excited about doing it, then pay me, you know, give me 25 grand or or, or whatever um, you feel you need. And uh, but you have to be in a position to then say, I won't do it, you know, and walk away. Um, and that's that's very difficult for for younger writers. It's difficult for me, you know, when I love the people, I love the producers, I love the project. You know, sometimes I feel like, well, maybe I'll be a producer and I'll just I'll just suck it up and try to get it over the finish line. And um, but but you really feel cheap if you're developing something for a, a huge billion dollar, multi-billion dollar corporation for nothing. And know? it's so I mean, listen, this is part of the reason we have agents and managers, right, is to have those conversations that are so difficult for us to have because we may like the producers, we may like the people we're working with. I'm curious to hear about like that side of the industry as you were coming up, especially like, how did you navigate the relationships and the work and the money and all that stuff that that is so hard to learn and you really only learn by being in it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting you say because like, I got my big break on the movie X-Men and that was my first writing job. So I wasn't really prepared to be an A-list writer the day that it happened. Um, I didn't understand the politics. I didn't understand the money. Uh, you know, I didn't understand any of it. And suddenly I made a lot of money. Suddenly everybody wanted a piece of me. Like it was, you know, it was the dream. It was the thing all, all writers dream of that you just suddenly have this big hit movie and everybody's after you. You're on all the lists. Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, some things I didn't do as well as I could have out of either naivete or the arrogance of being like, I'm the new guy in town. And I know I've figured out movies in a way you people never will. Um, I didn't really understand executives. I kind of felt like executives were there to get the opinions of writers, you know, people who knew how to write and create things. And they would appreciate it if we told them look, that's not going to work story-wise. They don't appreciate that. They feel like they're making the movie, um, which which is fair. In the, in the case of really good executives, they are making the movie. They are your creative partners. They have certain creative needs they need to meet per the demands of the studio. So it took me a long time to really understand what my place in it was. Not that we're useless and must be ignored, but that you are a piece of a, an enormous machine that is costing an enormous amount of money and you have to respect other people's money as far as your own money goes um you know i started making you know a million or two million a year for for a little while that that that's thank god that's no longer the case um and uh so i thought i had all the money in the world except you know 50 percent of it is going towards agent fees lawyers fees taxes so on and so forth then i had an extremely expensive set of business managers who cost me, you know, millions of dollars. And 
where I'm at now is is pretty good, um, but I should be far richer than I am. And that was due to uh, not really understanding the realities. Also, not understanding that, yes, you're making, say you make a million and a half this year. That's great. You may not work again for two years, three years, or ever again. Like, that's the point of working freelance. Your career could just end and um, and, and nothing ever happens again. So you feel like make a million dollars in a year, you're set for life. That's not the case, you know, not that I'm complaining. I'm just saying, I'm just warning. I'm warning all of your listeners who are, who will someday be making a million a year. Go easy, you know, buy a used Porsche. (laughs) It's, I mean, it is that thing that people on the outside of this business say, well, he got paid this much to be on this show, or he got paid this much to write the script. And like, yeah, but that's the only thing that they did for three years, five years, even like that's, People don't talk about that part of the business. 10 years. It's like, you know, some uh, Watchmen, the movie Watchmen took uh, nine years to get made. So, you know, you average out, um, uh, you know, if you're working on a television pilot or something and, you know, you make 250 grand, but it takes you five years to do it. Well, that's 50 grand a year. Nothing to sneeze at, but, but, but you can't live in L.A. on that. You need to do two or three other TV shows in that time. We used to work in a business that could, where you could sell a few TV shows a year. I feel like that's not necessarily the case anymore, other than, you know, the people who are sort of brand names. Yeah. I mean, I'll sell a couple things in a year sometimes if I'm lucky. Uh, But again, everything, everything moves at such a glacial pace, even, even TV, you know, unless you're just a, you know, a huge name or they're just going to rubber stamp it and off you go. Um, even so, I mean, it's still going to take you a year to set it up, to produce it, to come up with the the scripts a year, two years. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so I had some some like processy things I want to talk about. But first, I, I'm surprised to learn that X-Men was really your first writing job. Yeah. How did that even happen? How were you the guy? And like, what was it like getting that that gig? Uh, it's it, it's a crazy story. Uh, I mean, I've told it uh, uh, many, many times, but basically um, I was a, uh, I had produced a low budget film that I was in um, that uh, our, our, our acquisition deal fell apart and then I had nothing. I was a broke film producer. Um, but I knew uh, Brian Singer who was directing X-Men and I asked him if I could have a job answering the phones uh, on, on the movie. Cause I figured I'm broke. I need to, I, I can't, I can't be, I, I figured I was sort of quitting the business by, by getting a, a, a nine to five job for the first time in my life. And um, I started answering the phones and Brian started having me r- drive him around to creature effects houses. And he kept complaining about the script and saying, this is terrible and nobody's read the X-Men and nobody knows anything about them. And I said, well, I have. And, and, um, uh, and then I suggested a scene to him. I said, well, look, why don't you have a scene where this and this and this happens to solve these problems he was talking about? And he goes, good. Yeah, go write that for me. Um, and so he started having me do rewrites on the script without telling the studio. It was completely illegal. I wasn't in the Writers Guild. Um, and I did that for a few months until one of the producers realized what was happening, went to the studio, told them what had happened and said, look, you have to make a deal with this guy or we're in serious legal jeopardy. So they paid me $35,000, the guild minimum rewrite fee. And that's what I got paid for, for my script work on X-Men. 
Um, worked on it for 13 months, went up, went up uh, to Canada, uh, shot the movie, took part in casting and everything. Um, and then I was part of the brain trust on that movie. And then when the movie came out through another massively complex series of events, I ended up getting sole screenplay credit. And, uh, and then my friend Chris McQuarrie called me and he said, do you realize you are the most successful first time screenwriter in cinema history? And I was like, oh, sounds, sounds pretty good. Yeah. So, yeah. So I literally, I started out as a phone answer guy. I ended up uh, with sole credit on a, on a $80 million movie. That's wild. What was your writing experience before that? Um, I had always written, I had always written, um, I started writing stories and, and, things when I was 12 years old uh I had read all the screenwriting books I had I had written like probably eight short films and I'd written one feature but I but I wasn't I was an actor I was I didn't consider myself a writer I I just sort of loved the writing process but I couldn't imagine how you would translate that into a job you know acting just made more sense to me you you, you audition and you know if you're good enough if you're uh compelling enough maybe you get a job but um but it really was that example of of opportunity comes when good luck meets preparation. You know, I had been studying screenplay for quite some time. I had been uh, I had been working at it, um, but it it just wasn't my primary dream. It was just sort of something I loved. It, and it seems like on X Men and and presumably on X Two, like you were your expertise right you were the x-men guy you were the comic book guy they needed you on these yes. um yes generally though like what do you think it is what's your superpower when you are approaching a script what do you think you bring that that you know you do better than other people uh well one thing because i came up as an actor you know i play all the characters in my head you know, I really dig into the emotional arcs of those characters as if I am living them. People always ask, oh, what did you have such and such actor in mind for Wolverine? I'm like, no, I have me in mind. You know, I, it's my inner Wolverine that you're feeling, you know, and and, um, and then, of course, an amazing actor like Hugh Jackman comes in, gives it his own personality and it becomes and, you know, sort of between us and the director, you know, we fuse into one hopefully amazing character. Um so that's one thing. And then also I'm extremely good at writing visual action that tells you what the character is, who the character is, the way they fight, the way they struggle, the way they um, they go through turmoil and difficulty should never just be explosions or being thrown off of a thing or whatever. It's, you know, there's that moment uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark where uh, Andy is facing off against the giant Nazi and he punches him in the face and, and Harrison Ford just sort of reels and his legs give out from under him and he collapses. And it's like, and then, and then he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, on, I'm coming back to the fight. Like, but you can just tell he's just over it and it's, he's in over his head and it's such a, it's, you know, a lesser actor would play it off like, Oh, I wasn't even hurt or whatever. It's like, no, I'm hurt. I'm tired. You know, like that—that's a real character, and so that you know, those movies really inspired me to um, to write. Like, you know, uh, when we came up with the attack on the X Mansion in X Men Two, we were like, Wolverine should be there because we wanted him to cut loose, and and we wanted him to kill people in a way 
they never had before, but still PG-13 movie. But we said, you know, if he's protecting the children and faceless soldiers come in, the audience doesn't care. You can kill them, you know, they'll love it. And uh, and that's what we did. And so that was, it doesn't only show what a badass he is. It shows what links he'll go to to protect these kids. And that that tells you who he is as a person. Yeah, it shows character. That's really interesting. What does your process look like when you are working on something new, um, whether it's something you know you you that's pre-sold or whether it's on spec? What does it look like for you? Um, again, uh, I try to live the story. I try to step into the skin of the lead character, walk into the world, and look around and see. You know, what do I see? What do I want? Where do I want to go? Um, and then, if it's an adaptation, I look at the world we've got and say, okay, I love. Um, you know, like this place is incredibly cinematic. You also, you know, you always have to think in pictures. That's the deal with screenwriting. Um, and I learned that long ago. Uh, so you look into your mind and you say, what's the most visual place I can imagine from that book? Like what really stands out to me? Uh, what, what What is unforgettable from that movie? And then, you know, maybe start there and, and say, okay, so we're dealing if it's the palace, then maybe you're dealing with the king and you're dealing with like the problems of the land. Or if it's some um, crystalline desert, then maybe your lead character is lost in it or or what have you. Um, uh, you know, it's just a matter of uh, whenever I look at an adaptation, my goal is to say, uh, as with X-Men or Watchmen or whatever, Warrior Nun, these stories are real. Everything you ever read in an X-Men comic book happened somewhere. And what we're going to do is we're going to place a camera down in the middle of that world. And we're going to follow these, these characters around. And you as a fan should get the exact same feeling and experience out of living the movie as you did reading the book or playing the video game or whatever. To, that I take it very, very seriously as a creator. Not to say it could be funny, not to say it can't be ridiculous if that's the tone of your world, but it is real. You know, nobody makes fun of it. Nobody, um, nobody, uh, uh, you know, looks at danger and just says, oh, that's, 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 I don't even care about that or whatever. You, you know, it's, it's, you have to take it very, very seriously and you have to believe in it. And that was my superpower on the X-Men films. I loved those stories so much um, that other big screenwriters had come in before me, but didn't really care about what X-Men were. They were just trying to write a good movie and so on and so forth. But I, I loved Cyclops, Wolverine, Jean Grey. Like I just, you know, it was part of my, my formative years when I was 12 to uh, fall in love with those characters. Yeah, we should talk for a second. And I think we talked about this when we first met that like, comic book movies were not what people know them as now no it was the x-men i mean they've been trying to do the spider-man movies for a while but, um no x-men was first uh blade came before us and they did very well but that was sort of you know more mid-level reception um but but i mean the real example is you look at batman and robin um which is the worst example of how you can execute those films I don't take the character seriously. I think people are going to laugh at my costumes. I think people are going to laugh at the fact that this guy's dressed up like a bat. And that's a dire mistake because then you don't respect your audience and you don't respect millions upon millions of fans of Batman who believe 
we need this person and this person is a is an is an icon you know and should be frightening and and intimidating and you know and so of course later movies went back to that um but they didn't do it until we took wolverine seriously yeah it's interesting i mean i imagine the the versions of x-men that had been pitched before you got there were in you know in line with that batman and robin whereas when you look at like the stuff that worked the richard donner superman and and the, the even the 89 batman like they lived in these worlds yeah um you know some of the people that came before me um did some really cool things and and did did take things seriously the the problem was they couldn't get the studio behind it you know they couldn't get the studio to pull the trigger and so then and i don't know why they let brian singer do it he, he wasn't that big a director at the time uh his previous movie was that pupil but somehow he he kind of bullied them into letting him make the movie he wanted to make uh, and they and and you know really to tom rothman and peter rice's credit they got behind it and said okay we'll try it but they were convinced it was going to be a disaster like they you know that's why our budget couldn't go above 80 million that's so interesting um back back to this this process um conversation so you know whether it's it's about adaptation or whether it's your own thing you know you find sort of find your footing in the world at what point like all of these things are intertwined right the world and the story and the characters and what you want to write about i guess that's theme like how do those things start to take shape for you what what foot do you put forward first what do you start to you know jot down notes about first you know i feel like the first thing i want to do is raise a question in the audience's mind that they really want answered you know um I don't know if it's the best example, but Wolverine, you know, finding out that he's got no memory. I mean, this is quite an overused trope now in particular, but but the idea that he has no idea who he is, he's got this crazy healing power, he's got these incredible claws, makes the audience go, whoa, whoa, whoa what? what? What is the story there? And they'll hang on. for If, if you give a, an audience a good mystery, a good question to hang on to, they'll hang on through the movie. Um so that's kind of the first thing is to try to present something strange in the story where you're like, why is it, why is it that way? Um, I was recently I'm developing a TV show. Uh, when the when the strike's over, I'll be developing it. Um, where there is an explanation to this god. It's a sci-fi thing. There's some weird sci-fi thing going on, and one of the executives said, "I think we should just explain it all up front." I was like, no, no, the whole point of the show is what is this? Why is he doing this? Where did, why is he performing this way? What are these weird things coming after him? Like, like if you just give that all away in the beginning of the story, nobody's, nobody's got any reason to hang on, you know, apart from special effects or whatever, but that's not, that's not compelling storytelling. Um, so yeah, so that's what I try to do. And I try to, again, I try to let the character walk through these worlds deal with these problems in the way they will and the character reveals itself to me tells me what kind of person they are tells me um you know and maybe i'm adapting a, a character i've already read about or maybe it's just sort of a blank slate and i have to find out but but i would rather just write and write and write and put them in scenarios and let them come alive for me than to try to paste on them 
oh, he's got to be, uh, you know, pure of heart or he's got to be, you know, whatever, some some arbitrary trait we want to put on it. I feel like it's better to just let the story and the character grow organically for you if you don't have it already mapped out in some previous piece of material. Right. So so literally, what is that? What does that process look like for you? Are you sitting at your computer? Are you writing on a board? Are you writing longhand? What is it? How do you gather your ideas? Typically, sometimes I'll write it longhand. Most of the time, I'm just on my computer. And typically, every project, and I've done, I don't know, 50, 60 projects, uh, everyone starts with me sitting down going, okay, so here we are. And literally just kind of asking myself questions like, um, and I take this from this technique from uh, the book, uh, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, who said, you know, just take three pages of longhand and just write, write anything, write, you know, about how horrible your day is or the things you want to get out of your way or a story problem. Like why, why, how do I get them from here to here or whatever? And just, I can't figure it out and, and just complain about a bitch about it, talk about all the different angles of it. And the amazing thing is once you get into that writing mode, your brain just starts giving you answers. Suddenly something comes up and you're like, oh, it's, it's that, you know? Oh, okay. Like I didn't expect it. I didn't know where it came from, but it just comes. It's, 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 it's a weird, you know, it's like a good writing session should feel like a trance, you know, that you're, uh, I used to listen to music and then I realized there was no point because once I'm into it, I, I don't hear the music anymore. Music goes away. I'm just living in my brain. So if you can train yourself to get to that, that state, um, a lot of the ideas will come to you and be a lot cleverer than they would be if you just try to force it out of spur of the moment, you know, um, and themes start to unfold and things and something weird will come into the scene that you didn't expect and turn it in a different direction. And you're like, oh, this is fantastic. Because, you know, if you didn't think of it in advance, the audience won't see it coming. So, so really, it's a lot of the process is I've read so much. Like I just read hundreds and thousands of, of, of books. Uh, I watch all these movies. All this stuff is in my head. So really, it's just a matter of getting out of my way and letting the story come to life. Yeah. So you then how, at what point does structure become part of your thought process? I imagine following the characters leads to some of that. But at a certain point, you've got to start hammering this thing into shape. Well, I'm a big believer in structure, um, and I believe that, especially if you're doing something, you know, really expensive, you know, I feel like the audience, if you're making an indie film for 500 grand, well, you can play around or not have the story go, you know, in a typical fashion. But if you're spending 80 million, 100 million, 150 million dollars, you want to make sure that when the act one, when act one turns to act two, that they feel it. You know, an audience will instinctively feel it and they want to feel it. It's it's natural storytelling. It's been around since Plato, you know. Um, so, for example, so I was just watching the movie um, What's Up, Doc, uh, which I'd never seen before. Yeah, my daughter had seen it. She's 19. And she was like, oh, my God, I love this movie. And I, hadn't, you know, somehow missed it my entire life. So I'm watching it. So for those of you who, who, who don't know, uh, Barbara Streisand plays this sort of quirky, brilliant girl, and she sees this handsome doctor who's already engaged to some other woman, and she just kind of moves in and starts hitting on him and trying to get him to commit to her. 
which is an impossible task. It's like, why, why would he like, he's not just going to give up his fiance or whatever. And I was, and so that's the question in the audience's mind. Like what's the end game here? How is she going to pull this off? And what happens is, and this is a bit of a spoiler for act one, but she's, she pretends to be his fiance, brings him into a room full of investors, gets him the offer of his life, this, this, this grant that he has been dying to get. And all he has to do to get it is not expose her as a liar. And so there's this moment where suddenly you realize his character is completely stuck and he has to say, this is my fiance. And she gets what she wants. It's an impossible task. He cannot turn it down due to the circumstances we've already set up to his character. And I was so blown away by this. I clicked on the, I paused the thing and it's at 30 minutes exactly. Which if you know your film structure, if it's a 90 minute film, 30 minutes is where you want your act one to turn. That's all, you know, fungible and malleable. It can happen wherever, but in an amazing, in a perfectly structured 90 minute film, you pause it at minute 30 uh, just positive minute 30 and you'll see the act one to act two break. The, the characters will make a huge decision and they will move into another world. And that helps the audience go, Oh, we're going somewhere. Like the, the, the writer has us in hand. Let's talk about like dealing with that on some of these huge budget films where you're also writing, you know, 10 characters, if not more, you're juggling the, the, needs or demands of a director and stars and studio production and yeah cost how do you start to just wrangle all that stuff while keeping your eyes on the story well as far as and sorry uh, uh, just to, to briefly i properly answer your your previous question what i do when i'm heading towards once i've got a handle on the story i realize that once i'm heading towards page 30 or towards the end of the act i need to find a way to turn the story. I need, I need a new element. I need a new direction. So you'll just start to, you know, you get, you get a sense of structure and you just, you know, when, when the story needs to, it'll, it'll tell you when it needs to change. Um, so what I do on multi-character movies, uh, what I did on X-Men was I did a search for each character's dialogue specifically, just put in the character name and went, you know, line by line through every single so we had 11 main characters so i did it for storm i did it for cyclops i did it for everybody and i made sure that they no matter how minor the character that they have a at least a beginning a middle and an end journey doesn't have to be huge um you know storm in in the first x-men is basically like she comes to the realization i i dislike humans because i'm afraid of them and then she sort of learns, you know, the humanity of everybody. Uh, it's minor because poor Hallie got shunted to the side because she wasn't in the main love triangle. But um, but I made sure she had that. And I made sure if the characters didn't have like a, a turning point in their character to put it in. And, um, and that doesn't really cost you much. I mean, that's mostly dialogue. Uh, so that's how you balance that. Um, and then again, to go back to character defining action to make sure, I mean, you know, and the studio was very set on this and I learned a lot from that, that everybody plays a part. Everybody's powers have to come together in the final act 
to uh, make it happen. So, um, you know, like I'm pretty proud of the final the final moments of X Men. Magneto's got his machine. He's got Rogue up there. Uh, Cyclops can blast him, but it might kill Rogue. So Wolverine's like, you know, Storm, you use your wind to throw me up there. And if if you miss, then he can blast the thing or whatever. Gene, you have to steady me or I'm going to blow right off of the thing. Everybody comes together, you know, and it's very satisfying. And it's and because really the whole point of that movie is will Wolverine find a home? Will Wolverine join the team? And in those exact moments, that's where that's defined. Um. I'll tell you uh, what uh, Brian, the director, used to say to me um, in terms of third act resolution structure. He said, you know why Star Wars is a perfect film? Uh, Star Wars, uh, A New Hope, first one. I said, why? He said, because at the very end, Luke Skywalker is moving down the trench Darth Vader is behind him. He's just about to kill him. Obi-Wan Kenobi comes back and tells him, if you're going to survive this, you have to use the force. You have to take off your thing. You have to find your faith. So he finds his faith. He forgets about the, the threat behind him. He's just going to risk death. And then out of nowhere, Han Solo, who's just taken the money and fucked off, comes back, shoots Darth Vader, saves him, says, okay, buddy, let's blow this thing and go home. Luke fires off the thing, the Death Star explodes, and the next scene, no words, just everybody gets a medal, everybody takes a bow. It's perfect storytelling. In that one moment, everybody's characters resolve. So Luke, Obi-Wan, Han, Darth Vader, and Carrie Fisher, because she gets to survive. You know, she's not there, unfortunately. But um, but it's just it's a perfect, a crystalline button to put on your film and he knows enough to say we don't need any more words the story's over just lots of applause everybody bow let the audience revel in the in the in the joy of it and then we're out that's perfection yeah and you see movies where it's like uh, the story was over 20 minutes ago but we're still going you know the audience can feel that totally i love hearing that um you're you're watching movies now new movies old movies that you haven't seen and still like finding this stuff in it and it's getting you excited about it like that's that's great to hear that it doesn't go away no it shouldn't it should, i mean working in the industry can really ruin mediocre movies for you like you know you look and you're like god you know and i never once you make a movie you tend to not judge movies for being bad there's a million reasons why things can go wrong nobody ever wants to make a bad movie but if it's bad you know you feel it but if it's great and they can get if they can get me, then I'm so moved by that. Also, my daughter is studying uh, film at Berkeley. And so she's experiencing these things and is extremely intuitive in terms of story as well. So when she shows me a movie, she's like, oh, my God, I love this movie. I know I'm going to love it. I know that the structure of it's going to be amazing. I know that it's going to blow me away. And I knew that about I was afraid with like, what's up, Doc? I was like, oh, it's going to be some smarmy 70s thing and maybe it'll be all over the place. But she loved it, so I gave it a chance. And like I say, that first act turn blew me away. I was like, I was like, that's so brilliant, you know, and, and something that I never thought could happen, you know. So yes, it never goes away. Experiencing it 
with someone who is discovering it too is really a fun thing. It's really cool. Really cool. What so after, you know, 50, 60 projects over these years, what is what are the hard parts for you? Oh, not not going crazy. Um the hard part is juggling eight or nine or ten projects at once all the time for you know 20 23 24 years um it's exhausting um this part is because i started as an actor the pitching part is not very hard for me but for people who are just you know who are used to being writers who are in the rooms to then have to go into a room and and put on a sales pitch is not in most people's natures fortunately it is in mine so i'm 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 pretty good at that but that's it but that's you know the sales part of of writing you'd be the best writer in the world but if you can't sell it to anybody what's the point and and so it's unfair but it is um uh, that's something um yeah i think it's just the toll on your brain that it takes the just the the amount of stories and the and i think you need to find a way you know i try every day to take 10 minutes and just let it all go to forget to stop my brain from working on these things, especially before I go to sleep, because, you know, you think, oh, no, no, I need my brain. To, I need to solve this by morning. No, let it go. And your brain will solve it by morning anyway, because you got out of your own way. Uh, so managing the stress of it, managing the overwhelming amount of characters, storylines, plot lines that you've made, that some of them get made, some of them get thrown out, you know, uh, it's a bit of an onslaught, but um, but if you're lucky enough uh, to be able to survive at it, I mean, it's it's a hell of a lot better than a real job or, you know, whatever it is people do for a living. I, you know, it's it's amazing. I get to travel around. Sometimes I get to shoot in exotic locations. I, get to, I got to live in Madrid for six months while we shot Warrior Nun. Um, yeah, it's a it's a grand, grand adventure. And, and every now and again something yours opens at the at the Chinese theater and you get one night where everybody thinks you're awesome. And uh, so, you know, I do, I love Hollywood um, at its heart, despite all the horror and the difficulty and the a-holes, but, um, but I love it. I couldn't do anything else. Let's wrap up as we always do by asking what you are watching these days, what's getting you excited or inspired outside of uh, what's up doc. <laughs> what have you seen lately that you want to recommend to folks? Well, again, my, my 19 year old daughter is back from film school. So uh, since she got back, we've watched uh, Fargo, um, Barton Fink. Uh, we just watched audition Takashi Miike, which is really upsetting. Um, uh we're watching a bunch of awesome horror movies i mean i just finished watching succession which i thought you know uh the writing of those characters was really astounding watching the end of barry which is they've made some really strange choices in the final season um which are not I, i'm not gonna spoil anything they're not choices I would make because I think they sort of run counter to audiences' expectations of what they want out of that show. But at the same time, I kind of marvel at the balls of what they've done um, because they definitely gave you a, a final season that is not, nobody could have seen it coming. So I admire that. 
Um, but it, but I'd be interested to hear what other writers think because it's like the show had a certain. It's called the promise of the premise. You know, this had certain rules, had certain ways that people would behave, and they kind of everybody kind of went off of that a little bit in the final season, in a creative way, but in a strange way. So anyway, I don't want to be too cryptic about it, but. I'm enjoying it. Oh, that's interesting. I, I haven't watched the final season yet. Oh, yeah. No. Well, once you do, give me a call. Let's, let's discuss because you won't believe it. I, I do remember. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was like, since you started directing, how has that changed the way you write? Or is it all sort of part of the same process? It, 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 yeah, it didn't really change the way I, I wrote. What I tried to do when I started as a screenwriter was right for the director. I mean, there were times when Brian would come to me and it'd be like, you know, a million universes explode all at once or something. And I didn't write that. Somebody else wrote it. And Brian's like, I, I don't know how to shoot that. Like, what is that a picture of? And that, and that really stuck with me. I was like, Oh yeah, of course the director has to be able to see a picture of what you're, you can't just say the character's going through something. You have to, how does this look and what do they do? And um, all of that. So you know, I'm always trying to direct my version of it on the page, which then, of course, they're free to do with whatever they like and put their own visual spin on it. Um, the difference with directing when you actually do it is all of the other departments you have to run. Um, art, music, editing, you know, post, post sound. Uh, it's just it just goes on and on. It just taxes you on every level. And it's a really amazing um, job. But it's the difference between writing down what will be an amazing image and then figuring out all the pieces that are going to have to come into place to shoot it, you know, uh, and the, those are definitely two different headspaces. Yeah. Does it give you a different kind of thrill or outlet to do that part of it? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's very, it's, yeah, it's very, I mean, I think it's the hardest job, but it, I think it's the the most inspiring. It's the most challenging on every level in a, in a good way, you know, in a way that um, you know, really makes you think and really makes your brain uh, work. Um, and sometimes, you know, if I'm working on a movie, like a huge budget movie, I'll just write the craziest, most gigantic pieces just to see how they'll pull it off. Um, I actually wrote, I wrote a movie that was, you know, probably going to be 150, maybe $200 million movie. Uh, and they said, they said, well, the problem is your script is too big. I was like, what do you mean too big? Like, this is a triple A list. You know, I didn't think that was possible. But I, and I was like, plus, you wanted you wanted Lawrence of Arabia. You know, that's what you told me on some planet. So anyway, so, the, yeah, I wrote it too big. Um, right now, I'm writing a smaller thing for me to hopefully direct. So, you know, that's full of very affordable locations, very simple to shoot sequences and, you know, like that sort of thing. So. So that's kind of fun too is 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 learning how to write for budget and um uh adjusting you know what what your movie can handle what it can handle that's really neat um well i'm curious to see what you know a a smaller budget thing written and directed by you looks like i think that could be yeah, really me cool. too. um good luck with it come back anytime uh thank you so much for having me this is such a great such a great conversation so so smart and and um I really appreciate your time. I wish uh, all of your listeners enormous success. It's, you know, it's entirely possible. It's not always easy, um, but it is a great life. Uh, so wishing you all possible success. I needed to hear that today. <laughs>
Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you out on the line. All right. Sounds good.